0: uh this week's parsha is parsha's bishalach bishalach means when he sent and last week we ended off they're leaving leaving egypt finally after hundreds of years of servitude and now pharaoh sending the nation out and that's it we're out we're free or so so it seems at least initially we're free to go and uh um, so now where where are we heading we're going from egypt to israel to canaan then call canaan Now, the first verse tells us that we didn't go in a direct line towards towards Canaan because there were the Philistines in the way. They're going to be our nemesis for for many centuries after this. So the Philistines are there, and they're somewhat of a problematic people. So God takes them along a circuitous route because maybe they'll go in this direct path and they'll see war and they'll have an interest to return to Egypt. So it's amazing, like we just left in the very first verse, after we leave, it seems like there are at least the concern that the Jews may want to turn back and head back to prison, which is really striking. Uh, So there's a few things over here. First of all, we see that God is working on our behalf. He's trying to evade the problem problematic route to go around it. It means God is saying, there is a challenge ahead of you, Let's try to avoid the challenge. Let's take it in a different direction. That's number one. But number two, the people themselves are somewhat on shaky spiritual grounds. And the question is, of course, why? They just had 10 plates, death of the firstborn. Pharaoh is sending them out with lots of gold and silver and all these wonderful stuff. It seems like it's great. Like the, there should be an inspiration and passion and excitement. Now we're leaving why should we ever consider the notion of going back it's hard for people to change who they are uh, and even if someone has an inspiration especially if the inspiration was not self-earned this was given to them it was moshe and god and the miracle it wasn't they, re- they didn't reach to that level of inspiration on their own therefore it's a they're a little uh, you know they're more liable to lose it With something that comes as a counteracting force to it, and we'll see this. It's going to be a pattern throughout the rest of the Torah, where the Jewish people, even though they experience momentous heights, are still somewhat fickle. So it's somewhat, you know, on shaky grounds, and it's possible for them to have a reversion. That's number one. And but I think, you know, their question still stands: Are they really going to go back to Egypt? It seems a little bit strange. I heard this idea that. In the spiritual realm, it's not necessarily someone's actions that are the only things that matter. Sometimes a person's intention, a person's considerations, thats also it comes into account. For example, we know that mitzvos, so we think of mitzvos as actions. And the truth is, they are actions. But mitzvos also extend to speech, which is kind of like a hybrid. It's It's an action, but it's somewhat less quantifiable. And mitzvahs also extend to someone's thoughts. Because in the spiritual realm, uh, we don't deal just with you know hard and fast actions. Things that are somewhat more subtle, like speech or even thoughts, are within the realm of an action. And it's interesting here that perhaps we're suggesting the Jewish people may turn back and head back to Egypt. Why would they go back to Egypt? Maybe the concern is not that they'll actually turn around and start trekking backwards, but they'll say, Oh gosh, there's danger. I wish I was secure in my prison cell in Egypt. And it wouldn't be that they actually go and turn around and head back, but they consider it in their minds. They say, maybe we should, oh, what are we doing here? This is a bad idea. And that, on a spiritual realm, would be considered as if they got up, packed their badge, turned around, and headed back to Egypt. The Talmud tells us that someone does a mitzvah. Well, a mitzvah is a great thing. You create spiritual angels that will fight on your behalf. You do the Almighty's will. A mitzvah is fantastic. But what if someone does a mitzvah and then regrets it? it doesn't undo it. They just regret it. I shouldn't have done that. Says the Talmud in the book of Tadushan, page 40, they lose the mitzvah. A mitzvah is a spiritual quality. It's acquired via spiritual means and therefore it can be lost as well in that same manner. And one way to do that is to regret it. If you regret it, You could lose it. Similarly, if the Jewish people regret the exodus, they could lose the exodus as well and the spiritual heights that they achieved. And right away we see the people are leaving and they're being treated in a different way. This is a theme throughout the Parsha and indeed throughout the rest of the Torah. They're going to be upgraded in how they're being treated, but in direct proportion to the upgrade that someone gets is the upgrade of the challenges that they're going to be facing. And a lot of times we ask questions about those people you know, how did they do this and how did, do, how did they do that? It's important for us to understand every measure of upgrading someone has in the way God treats them will also upgrade the way they get challenged. So we see right away from the beginning that um, during the day, there's a pillar of smoke that's going to clear the path for them. At night, there's a pillar of fire that's going to provide light for them. Day and night, they're going to be encircled by God's presence. Now, this smoke and this fire, this wasn't just a regular smoke and fire. These were spiritual qualities that were manifest in a spiritual, this was kind of a touch point, spiritual and physical world, manifest by day by a cloud and by night by a fire. The Talmud tells us this cloud also was uh, provided uh, an easy trek for them. Uh, If there was a mountain, it would flatten it temporarily people got past it. If there were uh, uh, ditches, it would fill them as well. If there were a- dangerous animals, it would swat them away. It was it was a pretty r- miraculous cocoon that they were in. And we see like, right away they leave, and they're now enshrouded by this. They they have been upgraded. God is like personally tending to them, and just in a supernatural way, this is how they're going to uh, they're going to spend the next uh, forty years. And it's it's important for us to realize they're been upgraded. And now a lot more is expected of them. So when we see at the end of this parasha, they're going to be facing tremendous challenges. You say, well, why why are they being challenged? Well, everyone is always being challenged. The question is, at what level you are being challenged? Some challenges are more fierce than others. The greater someone is spiritually, the more fierce their challenges are. The Jewish people are being upgraded. Their challenges are following suit as well. Okay, so they're going the circuitous route. They're free and clear. And in, in 142, we see a um, they're going to pull off a gambit here, and they're going to try to goad Pharaoh into chasing them. So uh, they do a maneuver here t- to tell the Shem tells Moshe to tell the people to turn around and to start heading back, but to look confused. And verse three says Pharaoh will say of the Jewish people, they're imprisoned in the land, they're locked in, the wilderness has locked them in right? They're they're, they're lost, they're confused, and then I'm going to force Pharaoh, I'm going to strengthen his heart, and he's going to start chasing them down, and then we're going to have a uh, uh, climactic uh, end to this whole story uh, once Pharaoh chases them. So the people do this maneuver, they show they're confused, and now we're going to see what that Pharaoh and his people are going to chase the people. Now, it's interesting that if you contrast this, with, contrast this with the beginning of the parasha, the beginning of the parasha says that the Almighty is deliberately going to hit the Jews in a way that they're going to avoid conflict, so that way to not present them in a challenge, at least right now, whereas Pharaoh and his people are going to be goaded into making a mistake, into making the blunder. And in life, you know, there are situations where a blunder is possible, is liable. And we see a distinction. The Jewish people, God's making sure they're going to avoid the possibility, potential of a blunder. The Egyptians, they're going to be led right into it. And the question is, well, how's that fair? The answer is that we are, or we get what we choose to get. There's a morning prayer that we say every day. Don't bring us Lidei Nisayon. Nisayon. We don't, we want to avoid the potentials of a blunder. The Talmud tells us that if someone has to walk in two roads and both of them reach his destination, but one of the roads has in it a house of idolatry or a house of immorality, the halacha is he has to choose the other road. And if he chooses the first road, the road that's going to present a conflict for him, then he's a sinner. Well, he didn't sin yet. But there's a Jewish attitude and that is we're trying to avoid the at least even the need to have to make moral choices, because we know that the human condition is that it's not necessarily certain that we're going to be successful. So indeed, sometimes the choice is even a step earlier before the actual choice is, well, do we choose to be presented with a choice or not? And we're trying to avoid it. Whereas Pharaoh, it seems, he was someone who was okay bringing the potential of conflict, and therefore, okay, God says, you Jews want to avoid conflict, I'll make sure that you'll avoid conflict. The the Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they want to embrace the conflict or the potential of conflict, therefore, they got what they wanted. So Pharaoh is excited, he is inflamed, he's going to go chase down the Jewish people. Verse 6 tells us that he harnessed his chariots and he starts convincing the people to join with him. And this is emblematic of uh, of when things go awry. Pharaoh is a king. There's no reason why there's no reason why he should harness his own chariot, and we see this pattern throughout the Torah, where sometimes people behave in ways that are not fitting of their stature. And the reason why why would someone do that? Because if someone is so personally inspired and motivated, they behave in ways that are not befitting of their stature. For example, Abraham when Abraham was instructed to go uh, offer Isaac as a sacrifice, the binding of Isaac, the Torah tells us that he himself harnessed his own animal. Well, Abraham had, had a huge household with many butlers that could have done the job for him. And indeed, that was appropriate. Abraham was like a king. There's no reason why he should do that. But because he had a love of the mitzvah so strong, he wanted to be involved with it personally. Pharaoh here has a hatred so intense he doesn't want anyone else to do it. He wants to do it himself. We'll see Bilam in the book of Numbers. Again, we're told specifically he is the one who's harnessing his own animal. And well, whenever we see something that doesn't seem quite right, someone who's a king or a, a, a prophet or Abraham, they're doing things that they shouldn't do, what the Torah is essentially hinting to us is that they are so personally motivated in this thing that they're about to undertake that they're not, they're not allowing the normal course to guide them. Normally, they shouldn't do it. They're acting on their own. It's either a reflection of their intense love or their intense hatred. He takes with him 600 essential, essentially uh, tanks. These are chariots, uh, the chariots of Egypt, uh, the equivalent of tanks, of course, uh, with offers on top of them, 600 of them, and God strengthens his heart, and he compels him to pursue the Jewish people and the Jewish people are leaving with an upraised arm. Now, if you remember, recently we just had a lot of plagues. And the plagues, they caused a lot of mayhem in Egypt. One of the plagues was the plague of hail. And before the plague of hail, Moshe told Pharaoh and Pharaoh's people, if you want to preserve your property, bring it all inside. And the verse tells us some of the people of Pharaoh, some of them were fearing God. And therefore, they paid attention. Moshe says, your property is going to be destroyed. They brought it inside under the covers and they survived. The ones that didn't fear God, they left their livestock and their property outside and they all got destroyed in the hill. That's what we learned two parts ago. A month later, we have a bunch of animals bunch of chariots, which are animals, along with the, the chariots that are pursuing the Jewish people with a vengeance. Who are these animals? These animals are sponsored by the people that feared God and brought their animals in. So what's remarkable here, Rashi points this out, it, it, it's, it's almost, you know, it's almost comical. The people that feared God are the ones that still, you know, even though they did fear God, they still were able to be mobilized and donate their animals to the cause of chasing down the Jewish people. And this is really surprising. Rashi says a great line. Rashi says, the best of the snakes, he smash his head. The most cuddly of snakes, he still smash his head. Right? If you have a rattlesnake or a cobra, it's so cute, it's so sweet, it's so, it's so cuddly. No, no, you still smash his head. Because you know why? It'll come after you and try to kill you. Why is a snake like that? The answer is because a snake has certain Aspects of behavior that are built into its character and immutable. It is tenacious. It can get enraged and go after people, and it'll kill you even if you're uh, its owner. And therefore, because it's programmed in such a way, I don't care that it's the best one. It still it still has something deeper than the surface that's innate and immutable. What it's saying about the Egyptians of that time: they had reached a level of Jew hatred so intense, so profound, so basic, that no matter what their external behavior, they feared God, well, that was just to save their property. At their depths, they had something evil that hated the Jewish people, and it didn't change regardless of the circumstances. And therefore, they, yes, they, they were the best kind of snake, but they were still a snake, a snake nonetheless, and that's why uh, they behaved a, as such. It's possible that the Egyptians that were righteous, they all joined the Jewish people already. So whoever was left were the ones that maybe, yeah, they fear God as long as they relate to their own property. Uh, but their essential character was not necessarily changed and therefore they joined, they joined the pursuit of the Jewish, of the Jewish people. And they chase him down and they surround them. And we have this standoff. Pharaoh, along with his horsemen, with his army, and the people are surrounded by all sides. And all the excitement and all the drama of the plagues, you know, that's all fine and dandy. But if you're surrounded by an army, you don't have an army. You have Moshe and you have God and you have a bunch of women <laughs> and children. It doesn't seem, it seems like it's somewhat of a predicament. So Pharaoh is kind of closing in. And there's an amazing verse here, in verse 10. Pharaoh's coming closing in, and the Jews, children of Israel raised their eyes, and behold, Egypt was coming after them. They were frightened, and the children of Israel cried out to Hashem. This is the first time we really see in the entire Torah a prayer, specifically the prayer of crying out to Hashem. This is the, uh, the foxhole prayer. It's not a prayer that's premeditated. It's not like, oh, if services are starting at uh, 7 15. It's not that kind of prayer. It's a different kind of prayer. It's a prayer where someone is really facing a life threatening situation and they just cry out to God, and not only that, it's on a national level. And there's an amazing midrash here that describes well, first of all, like what's even happening? There's something, there's some transformation that's happening to the Jewish people. All this is part of God's master plan. He wants the Egyptians to surround the Jewish people and to force the Jews to pray because that's going to unearth. A national characteristic that's going to be part of our part of our culture, part of our way of life from then on. And indeed it was, you know, we know Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob prayed. We're told that specifically about those three. And it's almost it's almost as if here during this episode there's a link between this Jewish nation and their righteous forebearers. But there's an amazing uh, midrash here. I want to read it to you in the Midrash Rabbah. Why did the Almighty do this to the Jewish people? Because the Almighty wanted their prayer. Now, of course, it doesn't mean the Almighty actually needs their prayer. It means the Almighty wanted their prayer for their own good. He wanted them to develop their relationship with God via this prayer. Rabbi Yeshua Levi says, what is this comparable to? A king was along the path and he hears a princess being assaulted by a bunch of bandits and she's screaming, save me, save me, I'm being assaulted by a bunch of bandits. So the king hears and runs over and saves her. And then after some time, he wants to marry her. And he wants to have a relationship with her. And she doesn't, she's not interested. So what does the king do? The king hires a bunch of bandits, sets the bandits off on her, and she starts screaming again. And she starts screaming, king, help save me, save me, save me. And he says, that, that's all I wanted to hear. I wanted to hear you crying for that that's what the that's the marshal that's the uh, parable and so too continues the midrash the jewish people were in egypt and they were suffering and they cried out to god and they lifted their eyes to heaven and the mighty starts helping them and now they're they're free to go and they forget about god and this is the pattern right we know that when you're in trouble you cry to god and when you're free of trouble, you forget about God. So God says, okay, I'm going to send upon you Pharaoh again. And right away, immediately, they start, uh, they start crying out to God once more. And I think this is a, I think a broader lesson to us. Uh, and that is certainly w- with relation to the question of like, why bad things happen to good people. And the question is rooted in God's command over everything, right? If God doesn't have control over everything, it's all random. Then bad things happen to good people, and it's it all be random. But we accept that God is overseeing of everything. If God's overseeing of everything, then bad things happening to good people is obviously directed, or at least it's allowed. And the question is why? And here we have an answer, oh, at least one answer. This is a complex question. But one of the answers given is this one specifically. The, the reason why God allowed bad things to happen uh, to good people, sometimes, is because those good people are good people, but they forgot about God. And what happens when someone forgets about God, well, that's bad for them. And therefore, God gives them a little jab in their ribs to wake them up again and remind them of their faith and their connection to God. And ironically, when good things are happening to us, we're much more apt to forget God. When bad things happen to us, then it's likely for us to say, oh, where was God, and why is God not taking care of me, and like, help me, God. All those things are uh, come to the surface when bad things happen. So ironically, what's much better for our faith, when bad things happen to us, than when good things happen to us. I have a quick, I, I've said this example before, this story, but there's a great story about a guy who was stranded in his office on one of the top floors of a huge skyscraper. And as before, cell phones and the phone was down and he was just stuck in his office. It was locked from the outside. So he goes over to the balcony and he tries to holler down at the people and the passerby in the street, tiny little ants from his high floor. And he's trying to get their attention that maybe they'll find him. And no one can hear him because it's so loud and it's, it's so far away and it's so windy. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to start throwing down money. I'm going to throw down money and the people see the money. And they'll say, oh, where's this money coming from? They'll look up and they'll save me. So he starts throwing down money and he's throwing down coins and people just scooping up the coins and walking off, not looking up to see where it came from. So he says, I gotta up the ante. He throws dollars and tens and twenties, he's throwing hundred dollar bills, and everyone's just ignoring him, scooping it up and leaving. And he says, Okay, I have a different plan. He goes over to the potted plant, he grabs a whole bunch of pebbles, starts throwing down raining pebbles down on the people. And people are like, hey, what's up with that? Why are you doing that? And then they save him. <laughs> so that's the that's the story. But the example is, is that God is, is trying to get our attention. And he's given us so much goodness, and we just scoop it up, and we don't think, where did that goodness come from? And he gives us more goodness, and we say, oh, fantastic, this is great. And we line our pockets and leave. The way God has to get our attention sometimes is to start throwing pebbles. And when some, a pebble happens, someone stubs their toe, right? Oh, God, why did you allow that to happen to me? Right away, it's amazing. the a tiny little bit of pain, and right away the connection is reestablished. And and I think the lesson for us is, let's not forget God when times are good, and that way we won't need to have the times of bad. God will not need to get our attention in such a matter with the pot of plants. Now, the people are praying, and it's almost an instinctual prayer. It's, 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 it's amazing if you look at the at the verse verse 10, that they're, they're surrounded and they they're terrified, and they immediately cry out to God. And there's an amazing Rashi here. Three word Rashi. Tafsu umnos avosam. They seized the craft of their forefathers. Prayer is a craft, and the way, and and, and and that's number one, which is interesting. And right away, the people are reconnecting to the craft of their forefathers. My grandfather used to say that if you have a, a surgeon, and sometimes the surgeon he's on call, it's middle of the night, he gets called. In, and he's like in his pajamas proverbially, and he's there, and he needs to do emergency surgery. He doesn't need to stop and recalibrate. He's become conditioned to know how to operate, quite literally. And he's there, and right away he could be into it. That's a craft. A craft is something which someone became so deeply connected to, and so it became so intuitive to them, they don't need to be reminded about it. Like we said, they don't, the Jewish people didn't say, "Oh, Mincha is at seven o'clock." You know, like let us let, try to put it in our schedule. No, it was instinctual. It was a craft of their forefathers. They were in danger right away. Let us let us pray. It seems like there's something innate by the Jewish people, the craft of our forefathers, something built in that when we are in a challenge or when we are in danger, when we're surrounded by all sides, we call out to God irrespective of any planning beforehand. It's almost as if the conditions they unearth and expose something that we have latent, maybe we're not even aware of. My grandfather told a story of someone who told him that uh, they were during one of the wars, uh, one of the Israeli wars, and they were on a boat, a boat full of kibbutznikim, which is the early kind of Israeli communists uh, who disavowed religion. They, they, these were hardened communists. And they're on a boat in the middle of a war, and the boat, gets tor- the boat gets torpedoed. And this student told my grandfather that to a man, all these hardened leftists who abandoned God and religion all start praying to God to help them. And this is an example. There's something that's so fundamental to the Jewish character that it's unearthed almost only at times of grave danger. You're faced with a prospect of death, and that, indeed, is able to expose something really amazing from within. And I'll kind of extend this a little further. The Talmud tells us, and I did mention this a few weeks ago, that there's four ways to defeat the Yetzirah, to nullify its, its efficacy, its impact upon you. From the Talmud of Brachos, Yetzirah, the evil inclination, there's four ways to get rid of it. And the last one of those four ways was to remind it of the day of death. What it seems to me is that this story, because the Jewish people were faced with a prospect of their immediate demise, their Yetzirah was temporarily, at least, removed from the equation. Thus, what was latent and dormant within them, their soul, that has this condition of calling out to God instinctually, that was exposed because it was no longer being hindered, inhibited by the Yetzirah. And therefore, the prospect of death Automatically expose their soul, and right away they started praying. And I think the the idea, or at least the mechanics of it, is that our soul, if you could isolate it, if you could remove all the inhibiting factors to our soul, right away you'd have Torah, you'd have prayer, you'd have a Muna, you'd have everything. The only thing is, well, the only thing, it's a pretty only thing, but the Etzerah and its associated uh, adversaries to the soul, they inhibit its light to shine forth. But if they could be removed, or at least even temporarily, we could see a dramatic exposure and unearthing and and flourishing of of tremendous greatness. So the people are praying and they call out to Moshe, and this is going to be a motif throughout the, uh, unfortunately, throughout the the sojourn. Uh, They tell Moshe there's not enough Graves in in Egypt that you want to take us to die in the wilderness. Why do you take us out? This is uh, uh, where the great tradition of uh, of Jewish uh, comedy comes from. There's not, there's not enough graves in Mitzrayim. You have to take us here. And Moshe responds to them, "Don't worry. Don't be fearful. Stand up, and you'll see the salvation of God. You see Egypt. Egypt now they're terrifying. This is the last you'll see of them in such a way. God will fight for you." And you need to just sit by idly and watch. Now verse 15 here is a very interesting idea here. And God tells Moshe, so what does Moshe do? Moshe starts praying as well. God tells Moshe, Why are you praying to me? Why are you reaching out? Why are you crying out to me? Tell the people and they should just they should start marching ahead. They should journey forth. What's the problem? The problem is that they're actually landlocked. They're landlocked by the water. and They're surrounded by their enemies. But God tells Moshe, "Why are you praying?" And this is an interesting—you don't, you know, you're not accustomed to hear that—that that sentiment. God telling someone to stop praying, and that's, um, you know, what's the meaning behind that? Rashi says that Moshe was praying, and God says this is not the proper time to say a very long prayer. Why? Because the Jewish people are in a perilous predicament but I would think quite to the contrary I would think that if you are in a perilous predicament you should be praying very long that's what I would think so it seems, and there's uh, textual evidence to support this that there's two kinds of prayer there's a prayer that someone uses to get close to God It's a prayer of spiritual ascension. It's one of the tools that we have to connect with the Almighty, with our Creator. That's a long prayer. There's another kind of prayer that's not about necessarily fostering closeness between man and God, but it's about getting man's needs addressed, lobbying God to help take care of our needs. That's a short kind of prayer. It seems like what Moshe was doing He was conflating the two. He was giving a long prayer that had some elements of Moshe yearning to get close to God at a time when a short prayer was the appropriate prayer. The prayer of now there's a need and let's try to address it fast and let's try to present what we need supplication before God right away. And that's what's more important. I think it's a good lesson for us to know that there's really two elements in prayer for us, and they're very valuable tools. If you could lobby the president, a lot of people pay a lot of money for that, and the president has relative power. God has no term limits, and no limitations has all the power. So for free, we could lobby God. And that's a very powerful thing. That's prayer. There's another, and that's the short prayer. There's another kind of prayer, the long prayer, that is... The transformation of ourselves from being more body-centric to being more soul-centric, be, to be from more physical to more spiritual, from more from this world, earthliness, transient, ephemeral, to olamaba, to the spiritual world, to the eternal world. It's a transformation of, of who we are by our connecting to God. How do we do that? It's also via prayer. It's not about trying to take care of our needs. I guess you would say maybe this is the most foundational need of our, uh, of a human, but uh, it's not an immediate need. It's trying to really recreate who we are, reframe our identity, and to change from being a, you know, a, a body to a soul. That is the end goal of, of Torah. And indeed, that's the mission statement and objective of humanity. We have a fusion of body and soul. And they're in competition. If we do nothing, we'll head only in one direction towards the body and uh, this world. And if we fight back and resist, we can become more soul-like and connect to God. And how's that? one way that's done is via prayer. That's the lone prayer. Moshe was using that prayer. He was so accustomed to using that prayer. And God says, no, 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 there's another kind of prayer that's more appropriate for this time, and that's the shorter prayer. Okay, so... What does God tell Moshe to do? Lift up his staff, stretch his hand out on the, on the water, and just split it. Let the people walk in in the dry land. And then Egypt is going to make the critical error of following them into there, and then that we will see the, uh, their final downfall. And Egypt will know that I that I am God. Again, that's a proxy for the Jewish people to learn about faith. And the angel of God who went before them, he went now after them. And he created a buffer between the Jewish people and their enemies. And there's a whole night here where there's this standoff between the... the, the, Camp of the of the Jews, and the camp of the Egyptians, and this cloud, this angel of God that's in between them, that is presenting a, a buffer. The midrash actually says here that this miraculous cloud actually, uh, when the Egyptians would shoot arrows into it, they would it would bounce back on them. It was like a a, a sheath, you know. It was a, it was a shield that actually deflected any uh, projectiles. Now there's an interesting note here. We've spoken about this previously, about the various different names of God and what they represent. So if you look at verse 19 here, it doesn't say Malach Hashem, it says Malach Elohim. Elohim is a name always associated with judgment. Rashi tells us that If you look elsewhere, when it talks about the angels, the angel of Hashem, whereas here it's the angel of Elokim because this is referring to judgment. And at this time, the Jewish people were being judged whether to be saved or to be destroyed with the Egyptians, which is surprising. Uh, The Talmud tells us that uh, that the judgment went as follows. The Egyptians, their idolaters, the Jews... They're also idolaters. Unfortunately, Jewish people in Egypt had descended to very low spiritual levels, and therefore, they were behaving in ways that were indistinguishable from their neighbors. But to me, it's always interesting. Like, we, we just had... <clears throat> we just had the Exodus. We had ten, the, the templates. We had all the miracles. And now, is, was this all about, you know, trying to get the Jewish people to die together with the Egyptians in the splitting of the sea? It seems very strange, but I think the, the 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 lesson that's uh that's uh that's certain is that this is now like we said they're being constantly upgraded um, their spiritual revelations are moving up in stature and therefore upon every upgrade of spiritual revelation, there has to be an evaluation of whether or not the people are are meritorious for that. It's possible that the people only merited to have the Exodus, but the splitting of the sea—maybe that wasn't—they—they they, they weren't uh, befitting that level, and therefore they had to be judged, uh, judged anew. And I guess from the result, it seems like they were found—they were found to be uh, worthy of this. Because in verse twenty-one, Moshe lifts his arms, his hand, and there's a a very fierce and ferocious wind, an eastern wind the whole night, and the water turns in to dry land, and the water is split. So this is interesting here. There is a strong eastern wind the whole night. It's almost as if there's 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 like a tornado, a gale, a hurricane. There's these huge winds... That are happening the whole night, and then it splits the water. What's, what's the idea behind, behind these, these winds? The miracle of splitting the sea is undeniable. There is a miracle there. But the miracle is diminished by, by the existence of what we would assume is natural phenomena that, that preceded it. Someone who sees the miracle, they can say, yes, uh, this is a miracle, but there was a wind, a tremendous wind before him. And therefore, that gives people the grounds to say maybe it was just a naturally occurring phenomenon that happened to be very, very lucky because the people were were trapped and were surrounded, and therefore it was just the most opportune time. It couldn't have come at a better time to split the sea. Um, But it wasn't necessarily a miracle because there were some normal geological phenomena that could have contributed to it. Even though it's never happened, but so what? There was a wind, right? And that's, I think, a pattern that we see again and again. That miracles are always, well, they're always opportunities to disrupt people's free will. Because a miracle is like, well, all the rules that you think are all thrown out the window. There are no rules. God's obviously in control. So, uh, A miracle, that's why it doesn't happen so often, or at least not in a revealed way. Because if it did, people would lose their free will. So that's why the miracles are all hidden. And I've said this before, I'll say it again. The fact that your heart's been beating 89,000 times a day for your whole life, that's not a small miracle, that's a major miracle. But it's called a hidden miracle because it doesn't disrupt our capacity for free will, we're so used to it, we're so accustomed to it, we take it for granted. It doesn't upend our worldview. Miracles are, are, even open miracles are hidden as best they could by all these other factors that could contribute to people discounting the miracle entirely. There is another example of this. The In the temple in Jerusalem, when they built it, certainly the first temple, there were miracles present all the time. Um, for example, when people would bring a sacrifice and they put it on top of the altar, a heavenly fire would consume the sacrifice. But there's still a mitzvah to have ever-present man-made fires on top of the altar. There was always, at all times, between two and five different fires. And we'll get to the sacrificial stuff all the way in, uh, in, in Leviticus. But the question needs to be asked. If there is a heavenly fire that's consuming the sacrifices, well, who needs to have a fire from wood, a man-made fire on the altar? And the answer is yes, that, that's the way we work, is we're always trying to minimize the miracle. And God always wants to minimize the miracle. Yes, of course, it was miraculous, but people will say, well, yeah, there, was, there was there was human fire, and who knows, maybe it was a flare, right? There's always a capacity uh, to deny it. I've like, I always like to reference a study of, it was made in 2016 or released, published in 2016, that there's more than a trillion different species. That's a guesstimate. And previously the numbers were in the millions. One million, two million, ten million. Now they say that every time they take uh, a square meter of ocean water, they find millions of species they've never seen before. And they're all unique. And to me, it's always like the, preponderance of evidence of God's creation in the world is overwhelming, but people can still choose because there's still, there has to be other options. If there's no other options, then we don't have a world. Our world is based upon people being presented with options and being allowed to choose which way they want to go. Uh, similarly, with all the, these miracles, there's going, always going to be options how that, how that worked. Okay. So the people, they're walking into the into the water, the water splits, Egypt makes the ill-fated decision to follow them, they're going to suffer very very badly, their wheels of the chariots are going to fall off, they're not going to be able to drive, and Egypt is like, what are we going to do, I have to flee because Hashem fighting for the people, obviously it's not working with, with normal rules of warfare. Moshe stretches out his hand again, as per God's instructions. The water crashes down upon the Egyptians, its chariots, its horsemen. And towards the morning, the water went back to its power. Egyptians were fleeing towards it. And Hashem churned Egypt in the midst of the fire. Apparently, the water was kind of playing these games with the Egyptians. It was, it was swamping them, but then allowing them to kind of breathe and swamping them again. It was a really a bad way to go for them. Uh, whereas the Jews are walking between a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other side and dry land in the middle. Now there's an interesting Rashi here on verse 27 where they're being churned. It's, uh, Rashi likens it to someone who has like a pot and he wants to kind of turn over the, the schnitzel to get the other side. It's like, it's like turning it over, flipping it up, up, up and down and shaking it all around. But Rashi ends with an amazing line here. The Almighty gave them vitality to absorb the suffering. Rashi's saying is that these people were being toyed with by God. But the Almighty gave them the capacity to absorb it. And even though this time of the Egyptians, I think this, there's a good lesson for us globally that the more God gives a person to suffer, the more God also, um, parallel to that, is going to give them the capacity to absorb it. it. Is going to up their ability to suffer, and this is, of course, like I said, this is a it's a broad topic of 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 suffering in the face of a benevolent God, certainly. Uh, but there is a lesson here. and There is a theme in Jewish literature is that God does not give someone a challenge that they cannot bear, they cannot handle. And if there is a challenge that someone cannot handle, God ups their ability to handle it and absorb it. And like we said, what does that always do? It always allows for balance, for free will, even in the darkest of, of human situations. And verse 31 is the last verse before the song. We'll get to the song in a little bit. But verse 31 is a very critical verse here. Not to, not to say it's any more important than the other verse. I mean, all verses are important. But in the narrative, there's a change happening here. Israel saw the great hand that Hashem inflicted upon Egypt, and the people revered or feared Hashem, and they had faith in Hashem and in Moshe, his servant. So the two things that are happening here. Number one, there's fear and there's faith. And this is happening as a result of what they're seeing. And of course, there's a few questions here. Faith? How could they possibly have not had faith prior? It's almost, the verse is implying that the faith didn't come when the sea was split. It came when the sea was split for them, but it washed the Egyptians. How did they not have faith earlier? With well, the ten, the ten plagues, all the miracles that have happened, It seems like faith should have been achieved already earlier. That's one question. Question number two is that faith should usually, you would imagine, precede fear and reverence of God. If someone has faith, then they could revere God. If someone does not have faith, then fear or reverence of God doesn't seem to be appropriate. Here, if you look at the verse, initially they feared God and that led or then post that they had faith as well. So it seems like, it seems like it's out of order. So first things first, the people had faith. We erroneously assume that faith is like a switch. You either have faith or you don't have faith. That's what we assume. It seems very clear from Jewish sources that faith is almost like a characteristic that there is a whole spectrum of faith, from no faith to abundance of faith. But there's many, many levels in between. If you actually look, when Moshe came to lobby the Jewish people before any of the plagues, the verse does say very clearly that the people had faith. Now granted, that wasn't all the people, that was just the elders, but either way, there was a level of faith achieved prior. Whenever it, When it says now that they achieved a higher level of faith, That means, indeed, yes, they had a certain degree of faith, but that was upgraded to a higher level of faith. And in fact, the greatest proof to this is that when Moshe makes his mistake, his blunder of striking the rock instead of talking to it, much later on in the story, God tells him, you and your brother Aaron don't have faith. You have no amuna." And of course, that's preposterous to say that Moshe has no moon and no faith. But God does say it. it's in the Torah. The answer is, is that faith is a wide, wide spectrum. It's not one thing. It's an attitude that can be, you know, there's many different bands along the spectrum where someone could fit in. And thus, unless someone is an angel, there's always another level of faith that they can achieve. And specifically, what are these levels of faith? They are a tangible recognition that God exists. If someone has what I like to call cognitive faith or cultural faith, someone says, hey, father tells you, parents tell you, your society tells you God exists, you don't question it, that's great. That's cultural faith. Cultural faith is very powerful. But a higher level is when someone earns their faith on their own. It's acquired or cognitive faith. And even someone who has only faith in their head, but not in their heart, so to speak, it's not their, it's not something they accept for granted. It's not something, it's not something that, that governs their worldview. There's a next level of faith. And there's faith where someone doesn't even believe that the real world, so to speak, is even real. The fake world, the spiritual world is more real than the physical world. When, when Rabbi Yochanan Ben Zakkai uh, at the end of the second temple, when he meets Vespasian, he tells him, you're a king. Even though he was only a general. And he asks him, well, why are you calling me a king? I'm just a general. He says, well, the verse tells us, ba'adir Le- Lebanon will fall in the hands of the mighty. Well, what's Lebanon that's a temple? What's the mighty that's a king? If the, if the temple's gonna be fall in your hands, it must be your king. What that means is, that Rabbi Yochum when he saw his physical eyeballs, saw a general. But what did he see? He saw a change. Because his reality was governed more by what the verse said than by what his, what his eyes showed him. That's a very high level of faith where the spiritual world is more real than the physical world. And it goes even beyond that. But the, I think that's a very good lesson for us to know that we cannot just say, I have faith, I'm good. Your faith might be the very lowest level of faith. Cultural faith, you don't even think about that. That's the starting point. Maybe it's even before the starting point. Maybe cognitive faith or acquired faith, when someone has faith on their own, with their own calculations, with their own process, maybe that's the starting point. So I think it's a, it's a, it's a good lesson for us to internalize because it seems from the sources that faith is indeed the... It's the underpinnings of all of our spiritual and religious activities. All of them are ways to upgrade our faith from the most simple and basic levels to the much higher, more sophisticated levels. That's number one. Number two here. We see that their faith is preempted by a certain reverence of God. What this seems to me is that um, my grandfather said in the name of his teacher that faith is acquired out of sobriety. If someone is not grounded, if someone is not capable of evaluating in a serious way, they cannot achieve faith. When it's talking about they had fear of God, it means they had a certain equilibrium, a certain capacity to evaluate. And that indeed is the grounds for faith. When we're talking about our trying to ascend the various rungs of the ladder of faith, it's important for us to recognize that one of our inhibitors is the fact that we don't have the fear of God. We don't have, we're like drunkards. You can't talk to a drunkard about faith. If someone has to be able to be receptive to faith, because faith is a recreation of their internal values hierarchy. That's what it is. Imuna is is a painful process because it demands a deconstruction of your internal self to be rebuilt with a more immuna-centric attitude. To do that, you have to be very receptive. It's not an easy thing to do. It's 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 really coming to grip with your own internal. Challenges and vicissitudes. To do that, you have to have a baseline from which to, to, uh, to work towards it. And that is what it's called over here, vayiru, to have fear. Fear seems to be like it's a, it's an eliminating factor. It's going, it's going to give you focus and capacity to see the things the way they are and thus to achieve your, your highest level of amuna. Once they have that, let's see how it's manifest. The very next verse, they start singing this song. And it's interesting, they adjust the position of these two ideas. They achieve this level of amuno, they achieve this realism with their relationship to God, and it right away spontaneously erupts in song. The song is not something that was planned. It's not something that they decided to do. They had a committee meeting about it. Uh, it, This was a spontaneous eruption resulting from the levels of Amuna they just achieved, it manifests itself in. In a song, and indeed it was, it's, it comes from the heart. If someone has faith in their head, that's great. Cognitive faith is wonderful. Faith in the heart really is almost emotional. That, that's a very emotional faith. Only such a level can actually bring about the song that is going to result immediately afterwards. Their faith indeed went from their head to their heart. It penetrated their heart and right away, they started singing the song to God and this is the first time in the Torah that we have a song. And if you actually look in a Torah scroll, you'll notice that the, that the lines are actually not set up the way they normally are. Normally the lines start in the beginning and go to the end with minor exceptions. Here, if you look at the page, you'll see that uh, these lines, they're just set up in a... Strange way, they have these breaks because it's like almost stanzas of a song. And we read this, we read the read the words of these of the song, and we see what kind of level of faith that they achieved uh, at the splitting of the sea. This is known as the Shira's Hayam, the Song of the Sea. And let's read it here. I shall sing to Hashem, for he is exalted above the arrogant, having hurled horse with its rider into the sea. The might and vengeance of God was a salvation for me. This is my God, and I will build him a sanctuary, the God of my Father, and I will exalt him. And you'll notice in verse 2 here that it does reference a sanctuary, i.e. a temple, in the song. And the beginning of the song starts with a reference to the sanctuary. Look at verse 13 here. With your kindness you guided this people that you redeemed, you led with your might to your holy abode. Again, we're referencing a temple. And verse 17, all at the end, uh, you will bring them and implant them on the mount of your heritage, which is a reference, of course, to Temple Mount, to Mount Moriah, the foundation of your dwelling place that you, Hashem, have made, the sanctuary my Lord that you, your hands, have established. And and I, I do think that there is a connection, an intimate connection between uh, the song and uh, and the temple, and we have said previously that uh, there, over here at the uh, at the splitting of the sea, the people experienced a tangible, a uh, very real recognition of God. It does seem like the temple was indeed uh, that uh, in a permanent in a permanent dwelling place. That's I think number one. But number two, I think there's a very important lesson here. Whenever people have any sort of spiritual epiphany of any sort, they achieve some sort of idea that is transformative, it's very critical for them to realize that this is going to start dissipating. Right away, it's going to start to dissipate. Whenever you have something that you achieve, you realize that, that, that the inspiration is very temporary. The way to ensure that inspiration lasts is to right away inject that inspiration into something more permanent. If someone goes to the doctor, this is a Red example, and the doctor says, okay, you're a smoker, here's your lunge, here's healthy lunge, if you don't quit smoking, you're going to die in 12 months. But suppose someone has their experience. They're like, oh gosh, my kids, my grandkids, what's going to be? I'm going to, right, I'm, 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 this is terrible, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think about it. They go outside and they I need to think about it, I need a cigarette, right? That's what happens. <laughs> Just to ruminate it over. Uh, and that's a problem because the inspiration is at its zenith right at the beginning and then automatically it's going to start to to, to dissipate. Uh, and in fact, just harkening back to, to the mitzvah of last week, the mitzvah of matzah is about speed and immediacy. And we're told in the in, in Talmud that the Yetzerah is compared to chametz, to leaven and the bread. And the idea is that if you have a mitzvah, and by the way, the word mitzvah and matzah are very similar, you have a mitzvah, you have to do it right away or else the Hametz are going to come in, i.e. the Yetzirah is going to come and infiltrate and infect it and cause it to become impure. So the inspiration is at its peak. Right away, have to do something final about it to freeze it in place or else you're going to lose it. And it does seem that this song, this exclamation of exhilaration that they have, they're always putting these references. Let's find some way to make it more permanent, to have a, a domain in where, in where this inspiration is, uh, is maintained. And if you do that, you'll ensure that the inspiration will, will continue on. Otherwise, if you, if you allow it uh, to, uh, to remain there and you look at the inspiration on its own, it's not going to last very long. So the so in the, this song is is highlighting uh, all the miracles, Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's chariots and army through the sea, deep waters covered them. Your right hand is glorified with strength; your right hand, Hashem, smashes the enemy. Your abundant grandeur shatters your opponents. At a blast of your nostrils, of course, that's anthropomorphic. The waters were heaped up, straight as a wall stood like stood the running water. The enemy said, we'll chase them down. I'll divide them. I'll plunder them. I'll unsheath my sword. My hand shall impoverish them. But you, you blew the uh, sea to enshroud them. The mighty saints like lead in the water. By the way, this prayer, uh, this song is enshrined in the morning prayer said every day. Uh, because it's such a momentous, uh, national experience that it's worthy of reliving every day. Now, it's interesting, there's a a shift here. So the first several verses describe the impact that this had to the people present. Verse 14, it's not talking about other people. It seems to indicate that that this experience was heard around the world. People heard they were agitated. Terror gripped the dwellers of Pileshas. The chieftains of Edom were confounded. Trembling gripped the powers of Moab. All the dwellers of Canaan dissolved. It seems like this reverberated throughout the world. Yes, it was at its, uh, the epicenter was at the sea, but terror and fear befell all of them, at least for that moment. It's possible. I didn't even know why there were these tremors. There, there, there was just spontaneous uh, eruptions of earthquakes all around the world. And Everyone was <laughs> shaking, you know, and they didn't know why. Uh, but it seemed like this was an a, a, uh, international <laughs> event. The song is concluded. Uh, Hashem shall reign for all eternity. Indeed, that's a great exclamation of faith. And then the women get involved. Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the drum in her hand and all the women went forth with after her with drums and with dances and she spoke up to them, Sint Hashem, HaShem for he is exalted above the arrogant, having hurled Horus with rider into the sea. It seems that Miriam actually sang the whole song for the women after the men uh, as well. If you just read the song and you look at the highlights, you're like, "This, this is it. We reached the promised land, uh, at least uh, metaphorically. We're there. Like, look, look what we've got. Like, look at the song. Look at this love. Look at this joy. Look at this faith." What happens immediately afterwards? Verse 22, and they travel out of the Yamsuf, out of the Sea of Reeds, and they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went for three days, and they have no water. And this seems to really, pardon the pun, dampen the joy. You think about that. Three days with no water, that could cause you to go quite delirious. And like we said, this is a great example. Because they're having these experiences, they're being lifted spiritually, that is automatically going to lift their challenges. And we like to complain and fetch about these people. Why are you guys always fetching? Always want to go back to Egypt. Big deal. Three days without water. Why don't we try it for once? Just to get a sense. And what does it say? What's clear is that day one, they one, they weren't complaining. A whole day without water could do a lot to you. Look at, uh, uh grumpy people on your kipper. Two days without water, you're going, you're going crazy. Only after three days, they're on the brink of dying. Then they start complaining. And by the way, they're cold out. Why are you complaining? You know, uh, we had our friend a couple of weeks ago who wants God to split the bayou for him. I do worry. Let, let's say God did split the bayou. What would the very next thing be? It would probably be a challenge that we wouldn't want at all. And this is, this is what they sign up. I don't know if they sign up for, but this is what's happening here. They're having these miracles on one end, but they're always going to be juxtaposed to tremendous challenges that are appropriate, commensurate to their new spiritual status. And that, that, that's just the rule. The hard and fast rule has to be that there's going to be a balance. And if they have, these great experiences, they have to also have these challenges. What do they do? They go to Mara. Mara, the water is very bitter. They start complaining. What are we going to drink? Moshe prays to God. God shows them a, a, a tree, throws it into the water. The water's sweetened, and this, uh, and they're able to drink the water. They get a remarkable, a remarkable uh, statement here. If you listen to the voice of Hashem your God and you do what is just in His eyes and you heed and hearken His mitzvos, and you guard His laws, all the ailings, all the illnesses that I placed upon Egypt, I will not place upon you for I am God your healer. This is, I think, a remarkable statement. And indeed, this was used in for thousands of years. This was a rallying cry for the Jewish people. All we need to do is listen to God, heed His commandments, do what's right and appropriate. That's all we need to do. What how All our concerns will be taken care of by God, provided we fulfill this. And this was indeed an attitude, I, I would say, still exists today, at least theoretically, that the Torah testifies. All you need to do is follow God Heed his instructions. Follow the mitzvos. Do what's right and appropriate. Everything will be taken care of. And that's one of the lessons they learned in Mara. Uh, but this, I think, is, is remarkable. Talmud does have a whole discussion. Should you go to the doctor? Why do you go to the doctor? Who needs to visit the physician? Just do. Just follow this, and you're good. Why do you need to have a job? Just study Torah. Th- that was an attitude, and, and this is indeed one of the sources for that. So that was the first challenge. No water. They got through it. And the next problem is no food. So they travel from one place to another place and they start complaining again. If only we could die. Uh, we used to have so much delicious food. We used to have bread and meat. Why do you take us out of this land? We're all going to die of starvation. And in verse 4, we get the miraculous manna that is going to now be the staple of of the Jewish people throughout their sojourns in uh, in the wilderness, for the duration of forty years, they are going to be eating this miraculous food that's going to descend from the heavens every day, a daily ration, twice on Friday, in order to test them. Uh, verse thirty-five of chapter sixteen says that the Jewish people ate the, man, the manna for 40 years until they came into the land of Egypt. So This is a pretty remarkable thing. Like if you, you want to talk about the miracles that the Torah describes and the ones that were witnessed by millions of people, so you can talk about isolated events. Splitting of the sea. Ah, uh, maybe there was a typhoon or, I don't know, something happened, right? All the miracles, right? Uh, well, there was sediments in the water that made the water look red and, there happened to have, there's a lot of things you could say about isolated events I want someone to explain to you, I have not yet found a response to how manna falling from heaven to feed a nation of millions of people for 40 years how does that work out? like what's the explanation to that? what's the Cecil B. DeMille for that? <laughs> I don't know I have not heard of it I'd be very curious to know what that would be but this is the Torah tells us, Torah testifies this. This is what people believed. This is part of the collected corpus of our national identity. We survived for 40 years eating manna, eating some unknown food. We called it manna, where you get descriptions of what it looks like, what it tastes like. But the reason why it's called manna is because people are like, what's this? Manhu, well, what's this? That's, that's what it means in, in Hebrew. And they ate it for 40 years. So think about that. How many meals is that? If you assume three meals a day times, uh, so that's 3 million meals a day, times 364, not including Yom Kippur, I guess. How many meals are we talking about? We're talking about billions and billions of meals, all miraculously being parachuted down from God, from heaven. And you keep the food over for the next day, it's spoiled. And you get twice, two of them on Shabbos. It's pretty unbelievable. But if you also think about it, this is also a challenge. Imagine you had exactly one day's meal for you and your family. And where's it coming from? It's dropping down from heaven in little parachutes. You would say that's great, but the second you think about tomorrow, you have to just rely on God entirely. It's wonderful until you actually have it. Imagine you get delivered breakfast, lunch, and supper and, you know, in your door. It's great, Wonderful. You get deliver, free delivery. and it's, it's a fantastic food. Wonderful. But you don't have anything you can put in your closet. You try to put in some in your closet. You try to say, oh, let me, let me store some up for tomorrow. No, get spoiled. Think about the challenge that is. That's indeed, indeed the manna is a miracle, but it's a miracle mixed with a challenge. It's a miracle because it's coming straight from God, and it's a challenge because you have exactly one day supply and not two day supply. You try to collect more, it doesn't help you. You try to save something for tomorrow, it doesn't help you. This is all you've got. And it's total reliance on God. That's indeed a great miracle and a great challenge and a (laughs) test. But indeed this does go back to what we said earlier, that the Jewish (laughs) attitude certainly of this time, but as exemplified in these stories is that we're relying on God entirely. God's our healer. God's feeding us. And we have no buffer zone. We have no security blanket. We don't have Any rainy day fund to save in case things go bad. What if God takes a day off? We're all dead. Right? But that's the way God wants to train us. There's going to be, this is a 40 year boot camp to train the people to say, we rely on God and we have no other choice. And this is fact and reality for us. This becomes our reality. This is our faith now. And we have only one place to turn to, and we have zero security, we don't have a government to watch over us, we don't have a 401k to be able to withdraw from early, we have no uh, uh, safety net of a welfare state, none of that. There's no unemployment, there's no uh, food stamps, all we have is the knowledge that God is going to parachute more food tomorrow. And that's pretty, I think, a pretty remarkable uh, st- statement uh, okay. to, to have. And there's also another lesson here. Like, someone who tried to heap up the manna to bring home, when they got home, all they had was the same amount. You couldn't couldn't stockpile. There's no way to stockpile it. And that's another powerful lesson is that we are being given what we get from God, and we cannot necessarily change that, or at least in certain instances we can't change that, where we're almost limited in how much we could amass. We try. We think we can amass more, but the truth is we can't. God's going to take care of them pretty wonderfully. They got a double portion for Shabbos, which is why we have a double challah every Shabbos, is to remember the manna. Well, that's why you cover it. It's kind of like in the uh, blanketed, in the dew, we blanket our challah as well. There's a mitzvah here. Moshe tells Aaron to take a little vial of it. They took a jug and they filled it up with manna. And this was the only manna that didn't spoil after a day. And they kept it in this jug. And for centuries afterwards, whenever the people were complaining, where's God? They'd pull out this jug. The same jug that Moshe and Aaron filled up with manna. And times were so tough and where's God taking care of us? The truth is, look at the manna. Like we survived billions of meals delivered to us by God and with this same manna, with them pointed. Look at this manna. You see it? This, this is how God could take care of us provided we're worthy of being taken care of. Ark, it? it was in the ark. It was kept in the ark. That's right. Along with... Uh, Aaron's staff yeah. that sprouted almonds yeah. a little bit later on as well. Yeah, there were some things that were kept there as, uh, as, as lessons of faith, yes. Last yeah. thing that happens in the Parsha is that they get attacked. And this is Amalek. Amalek is described as someone who's able to jump in the fire. Amalek is suicidal. Amalek is considered the arch enemy of the Jewish people because everything that we present, represent they represent the opposite. The Jewish people just had the splitting of the sea. The reverberations of that were heard throughout the world. Amalek doesn't care about that. They're suicidal because they're dead set against uh, against the Jewish people and the Jewish people flourishing. They come attack the nation, which is a stupid thing to do. They get absolutely destroyed, and we're told that we have to. Our national mission is to destroy these people because these people and what they represent are the antithesis of what we do. And indeed, our national mission is to eradicate Amalek, both the nation and the Amalek that we have within us. Every, the Yetzirah is compared to Amalek because the Yetzirah also is suicidal and also wants to cause destruction and our detriment. And our national mission is encapsulated at the end of this parasha to destroy and erase and obliterate the remembrance of Amalek from under the sun. Next week, we're going to learn about the Ten Commandments, the arrival of Jethro, and the cementing of this wonderful relationship in the form of the Torah.